We are back. Call of the Wild Series 2. And safe to say, I am buzzing. Welcome along to a brand new jam-packed series of Call of the Wild, the podcast from WWF with yours truly, Cal Spellman. Now, if you're new to the podcast, please grab a seat and please do stay with us for a while because this is the place where I try and find out more about the environmental threats to our planet and more importantly, how we can help. It can feel like there are a lot of problems facing the natural world today which there are. Every year, an area of trees about the size of the UK are destroyed. Global warming is likely to be one of the biggest causes of species extinctions this century, and somehow we need to find solutions to fix all of that. And that is exactly what we're going to be exploring throughout this next series. But if I learn anything from series one, it's that there is always hope, and there is so much good going on right here in the UK and around the world. Now, hope might be harder to find at times, but connecting with nature can help us on that journey, improving both our physical and mental well-being. We need to look out for ourselves as well as the planet. And the thing is, the two actually go hand in hand. They are intrinsically linked. A recent study found that spending at least two hours a week in nature is associated with good health and well-being, whether that's a long walk or lots of short visits. So today, in this episode, we're going to find out why. I'll be joined by the brilliant, the super cool broadcaster and writer Fern Cotton about finding her happy place in nature. If there's hope, that is going to propel you forward and give your action this huge sense of possibility and that something brilliant could happen. I'll also be chatting with Will Baldwin-Cantello from WWF UK about the positive impact nature can have on our health. Improving our mood, reduce negative feelings and anger and so on and boosted positive feelings. Plus, we'll hear from someone who turns to nature to help them with their mental well-being. Let's begin with our physical health. There is a long process that goes into approving modern medicine that we use today to make sure it's safe, and rightly so. But you might be surprised to hear how so many of these curing chemicals we use today are connected to our natural world. If you had a headache, would you munch on some willow bark to help ease the pain? Or pick a Madagascar periwinkle for its anti-cancer properties? Probably not. But these are just two examples of nature quite literally saving our lives. Take aspirin, for example, which, although now manufactured synthetically, was originally extracted from the bark of the willow tree. And indigenous Madagascan communities first used the Madagascar periwinkle to treat diabetes. But nowadays, the plant is more commonly used for its cancer-killing chemicals. Nature is the ultimate chemist. Our entire world can be broken down into chemicals and modern techniques can enhance properties from plants and animals that help our health. But there's a balance. Indigenous communities have worked in harmony with their environment for centuries to find the medicines they need, understanding that if they plunder their resources, the community suffers in the long term. And that's something we need to learn. Let's look at another cancer-killing chemical called paclitaxel. It comes from the bark of the Pacific yew tree, and it's so important that it's listed as one of the World Health Organization's essential medicines. But until 1994, 
harvesting paclitaxel from yew trees meant stripping the bark and killing these rare and slow-growing trees. More than a thousand of these would be destroyed per year, damaging ecosystems and pushing the species to the brink of extinction. Although paclitaxel is now manufactured synthetically, there are still many drugs where demand is having a profound negative effect on the environment. And when it comes to finding new medicines out there, we've barely even started. There's so much we don't know about our natural world. Some scientists believe that the key to finding medicines for hard-to-treat diseases, like some devastating fungal infections, lies in the wisdom of as-yet unstudied species. Some estimates suggest we lose one important new drug every two years due to damaged environments and habitats, so it's important we continue to protect them. And in doing so, we ultimately protect ourselves. And that's the thing about physical health. If it's something we can see or put a finger on, we're much more likely to try and fix it. For instance, if you break your arm, put it in a cast. However, finding solutions for our mental health is a lot harder to pin down. But could that answer be found in nature? Well, my friends, it was a question I put to Will Baldwin-Cantello. Will is the director of Nature-Based Solutions at WWF UK. He's also the man behind Thriving with Nature, which is a free guidebook from WWF UK and the Mental Health Foundation, which is all about recognising the increasingly important role that nature plays in supporting positive mental well-being. He started by explaining the impact that nature can have on our health. One of the ways in which connecting with nature supports our well-being is that we feel part of something bigger every kind of week or month there's new research showing how time with nature supports good mental health and so that, that evidence body is growing it's the connection to nature that leads to the, to the strongest benefit so it's about using your senses it's about you know noticing what you're seeing noticing what you're smelling experiencing touching feeling nature where you are smells and tastes as, as well are all part of that so if you have an opportunity to go into nature and use all your senses then you're going to be gaining that benefit it could be as simple as that and small doses is all it takes 10 20 minutes a day several times a week can really have an impact getting up to you know two hours a week there's no reason not to do more but that, if that's all you have that can be enough so yeah i guess will then what what are the the benefits that we can get from from going out and, and spending time in nature you know why is it so good for our health what are the things that can happen to us there's lots of different ways in that being in nature really helps our mental health Improving our mood, reduce negative feelings and anger and so on, and boosted positive feelings, reduce stress, can boost our self-esteem. It has quite a physiological effect on us in the sense that our brain kind of operates in a slightly different way. It's, it's easier for our brain to focus, which allows it to enter into a bit more of a restorative mode. And when we're saying about going out in nature, what specifically what we're we actually talking about, Will, is that, you know, kind of, is it just a little park? Is it about trying to get into, you know, maybe try and find a forest? Where is it that we're looking for to try and do this? The beauty of nature is that it's everywhere, isn't it? <laughs> As, and, that's, and, that, and that's the basics of it. Of course, there are tremendous opportunities to go and explore some wilder parts of the country, wherever you live. It's about finding nature where you are, looking for it. You know, in every city, there are parks. You might be lucky enough to have a garden, a balcony, even a windowsill. The research on the link between nature and health often points back to an original study in the 1980s that showed that a view out of a hospital window to a natural space versus another building dramatically increased recovery rates from surgery. 
So if you take that as your lead, enjoying the view from your window, having photos around you that remind you of natural places that you care about, that have got a positive memory for you, plants in your home, scents, sounds of nature, you could even start there. And I think it's worth acknowledging if you really are struggling with your mental health, getting outside can be quite a big effort. But when you can, you know, taking those small steps to the places nearby you or looking at what you can do inside your home is a really good and practical step. You don't have to be going far. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm going to talk, mention a term now, which, again, I think I remember hearing this for the first time probably about four or five years ago and not quite understanding it. Eco-anxiety is very much a thing, and I think it's very much kind of seems to be rippling around, um, particularly around my generation and, and the generations after me. For those who might not know, Will, could you first of all tell us what is eco-anxiety? It kind of stems from this growing awareness of the scale of the climate and the biodiversity crises in particular. We're seeing climate change affecting our daily lives, whether it's the spring flowers coming earlier than we expect this year is one one example of that. Um, at the same time, you hear about the loss of species, the way that biodiversity collapse could threaten our food security and so on. And so it feels enormous, huge challenge. And then and at the same time, it feels so big that it's very hard to have an influence on. And the two things combine in a way that um, it can build a high level of anxiety. And It's hard to know how do you actually deal with those feelings. I mean, I don't know if you've ever come across any top tips, I guess, Will, to, to how you can navigate dealing with eco-anxiety. I, I don't I don't have any silver bullets, but I think my advice would be, so if we don't bottle it up, let's talk about it, let's bring it into the open, let's share. And that's good anyway, whatever your source of anxiety. At the same time, you're starting to act on that because you're sharing that thoughts and feelings with other people and you're starting to create the social conversation we need about what changes are going to have to happen, what solutions are we going to have to come up with, what behaviour patterns do we need to be looking at as a collective group of people. Think about what agency you do have and use that. You know, we all have bank accounts. We all have an opportunity to vote. We all have an opportunity to choose where we shop. You know, we should just think about how we can utilize all of those things. Um, social action, we know through research, has a positive effect on self esteem and um, it can be really quite empowering. The other thing, of course, is I mean, the climate and the biodiversity crisis are real, but it doesn't mean there isn't joy to be found in nature around us. And UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world, but it's still amazing if you bump into a nuthatch climbing down a tree in the woods or you happen to spot a hedgehog or a fox on your on your evening run, whatever it might be. Let's take joy from that and not be afraid to be optimistic. It's funny, I, I don't know if, if I'm going to word this question right, but I felt like this is almost, there's, there is a correlation to the way that we don't really talk about our mental health in the same way that people don't really like talking about or accepting the climate crisis. I just wondered, especially in your role, how can we drive the conversation and our understanding around these topics, i.e. mental health and, you know, the climate crisis and our place in it without it becoming overwhelming or too bleak? Is there a balance to be found? Yeah, I, I can definitely see the parallels. I think both climate change and mental health are socially quite difficult things to talk about. Both of them acknowledge a level of vulnerability, but raising the questions, putting the ideas forward, being courageous in going to a room and putting it on the table is important. And, and by doing that, we're leading by example. And I think there are parallels here too to Black Lives Matter, anti-racism movement. We need to be courageous to bring these issues into conversation. Otherwise, they will be unspoken and they, we won't act on them in the way that we need to. So all three of these things are really important things that we can all lead by example in, in having that comfort, that calmness and that empathy while um, bringing them into everyday conversation. 
Yeah, it's beautifully put. That's um, that's so true. Well, thank you for that. Have you noticed an increase in people connecting with nature and, and using it as a remedy for mental health? Have you, have you noticed it kind of being more generally accepted and people trying to do it a little bit more? Definitely. Across the country, in the UK, we see the NHS is increasingly using social prescribing or looking at social prescribing as, a, as an approach. And that's essentially instead of prescribing a, a pill or talking therapies is looking at, well, there's a nature therapy opportunity down the road. I'm going to encourage this person to, to take part in that. But also during the pandemic, the Mental Health Foundation were, were doing repeated surveys and almost half of the people that, that responded to the survey said that nature was a key part of their coping strategy. People were using that to go for that run, that walk in green space, and that kind of carried on. It's something that hopefully will become a new habit. We don't want our, our listeners to think that that we think this is the only solution, of course, and it's a complementary approach to all of the opportunities we have through our health system to support our mental health. But this is something that's within our gift, within our power. It's something that's a great complement to talking therapies and to other things that might be needed. Thank you, Will Baldwin-Cantello from WWF UK. And do not forget the free guidebook, Thriving with Nature, is so easy. It can be downloaded from our episode description if you want to find out more. And trust me, friends, there are so many pearls of wisdom in there and really goes to show just how important spending time in nature can be, not just for our physical health, but for our mental health as well. So for those that have been on this Call of the Wild series from the start, you'll know that usually at around this point in the episode, we reach out to people from around the world. But we wanted to do something a little bit different and celebrate connecting with nature closer to home. Here's one for you. The Office for National Statistics reported that more than 40% of people they surveyed noticed that nature, wildlife and visiting local green and natural spaces were even more important to their well-being when the Covid restrictions began. Proof that it's crucial everyone has access to nature, restrictions or not. For a lot of people, they were forced to interact with familiar surroundings in new ways, which was the case with Mark Miller from Edinburgh. But it wasn't his local park that he turned to. I started swimming when I was very young. We used to go to, down to a little cabin next to the beach down in Dumfries and Galloway and uh, my grandmother would make us walk along and swim in the nearest bay. So I did that every year up until I was about 14 and then came to Edinburgh and moved to Portobello where there was a beach here. And I don't think I ever swam in the beach until the lockdown happened. And uh, I have a, a f- she was five years old at the time, autistic daughter who absolutely loved swimming. But as lockdown closed all the swimming pools, I would uh, take her down to the beach and take her in the water there. And that really helped her. And I realized that helped me as well. So just made me kind of just a complete reset of how your day or how your week was going or even the things that have been on your mind. You're just a lot more in the moment. You're, you're not thinking about anything while you're in the water apart from how nice it is in the water and the, the, the mood of the water as well also changes your mood as well. It can be wild and wavy or like glass down there. And I don't think I was that confident in swimming in the sea myself. And I didn't really have any friends that would do it. And I would always see men doing it solo, always solo. So I, I made a little post one day just to see if anyone was wanting to do it. And I called it a kind of mental health swim just to see if anyone else was interested or just to kind of test the waters and see what would happen. 
and within weeks we had like 30 or 40 people coming down and uh, I founded the Edinburgh Blue Balls in September last year and proud of everyone for going along I get a lot of messages from people saying they're very nervous to come along they're they're nervous of joining a big group and I think I think that's part of the charm of the group is everyone has pretty much quite a lot of anxiety and I think that there is just what makes the group so special because everyone has these feelings and once they come along the water just takes that away. You're just enjoying being in nature in that moment. Oh, Mark, that sounds beautiful. Sign me up. I would love to come and join you and your group for a wild swim, so please do give us a shout. And there's no doubt that finding that moment of quiet, of calmness, of serenity in nature does wonders for the soul. I know it's something that is so important to me and something I need to get by week by week, whether that is on land or in water, which is why restoring and protecting nature wherever you are has never been more important. And that, my friends, is exactly what WWF are doing. They are putting that into action with their project, Wild Ingleborough. They are working with a partnership of organisations and local communities, which as we know is so important, to restore over 1,150 hectares around Ingleborough in the stunning Yorkshire Dales. This is going to give a home to beautiful species that are under threat, including the black grouse, their brown hare, and plants like juniper, another fact for you, 70% of which have been destroyed by disease and so much more. In some areas already, vegetation is regenerating naturally. In others, WWF have been connecting areas of woodland by planting thousands of trees over the last year. Not just that, they're also restoring areas of blanket bog and ancient habitat, which is important for storing carbon, as well as being home for many wading birds. It is projects like this that fill us with that hope I was talking about at the start of this episode. It just goes to show what we can do and it's so exciting that we can create a landscape that benefits people, nature, ecosystems, as well as tackling the climate crisis. It all goes hand in hand. I'm delighted to say I am now joined by a lady who needs no introduction, but I will give her one anyway, the supremely talented Fern Cotton. So many of us will have grown up with her on our screens and on our radios, but if you're a keen podcast listener, you will also know her as the host and founder of the award-winning Happy Place, which is all about what happiness means to her brilliant guests. Fern began by telling me about her thoughts on the crossover between the state of our planet and our mental health. We often have the conversation about mental health and well-being excluding environmental issues and that's a huge flaw in that conversation because mm-hmm. without us looking after the planet that we live on what does that say about our mental state it shows we have an undercurrent of you know a lack of self-respect because we're not respecting the ground we walk on and mm. the food that we're growing not personally growing but the, how the food industry works and all these things that impact it we have to combine the two. They have to have a huge crossover for both to improve. Yes. And I don't think they work on their own without us talking about mental health when talking about the environment and talking about the environment when talking about mental health. Yeah. So that's something I need to dive into more because I've only tentatively done so. But they're part of the same problem, I think. 
massively there is that symbiotic relationship i think we've lost the connection to the natural world it's a big theme that keeps coming up on this podcast going back maybe to, to, to the beginning of your uh, guest relationship with nature firm what what are your early memories of like the natural world kind of when you were growing up possibly or did it maybe come a little bit later in life for yourself uh, I think both. I, you know, I grew up in um, the suburbs of London, so not particularly green, sort of classic working class suburban town called Eastcote. No one's heard of it. Nope. Um, and it, it was, you know, absolutely perfectly fine childhood, but not particularly sort of bucolic. It, it was lots of pavements and, yeah, I like the word bucolic. Oh, it's a great should we word. use the word verdant? There was not much... <sighs> verdantness about um it was there was just there was like a park down the end of the road but you had to go away to get green and we didn't really go into london that much because there was not really any need and it was an expensive thing to do but we equally didn't really go to the countryside so the first time i went i remember going to the countryside was to go to my very dear friends now jenny and john's house in dorset which i've got a huge love affair with dorset and I just felt such a sense of excitement and peace. Like, what is this lifestyle they have? This is mm. so different to my my upbringing and my lifestyle. And so you spoke about, of course, the, the love affair with Dorset. I'm guessing then it is the beach, another place in nature. I guess that you'd, I've wrote this down, I have to get it in, that you'd call your happy place. Oh, there we go. Yes, very much being by the sea. Both my kids, but especially my nine-year-old Rex, is obsessed with the sea. I mean, he would... Literally go rock pooling all day, if you let him, until the sun went down. We went to oh. the seaside last week for half term and we were just looking for crabs for hours and he's in his element. So oh. that's really hit home how important that is. But I know even just going out into the garden at the end of the day and looking at the sky, even when it's pitch black, that feels like enough sometimes. So yeah. it is so, so important to me these days. In my 20s, not so much. I was living right in London I didn't give a toss if I saw a tree or not. I was just working, 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 working. Not like that anymore. My life is very different. And family being a big focus for me means we need to get outside and to the sea as much as we can. So it's highly important. This podcast, of course, we're, we're centered around the environment and, and trying to really open the conversation on climate change. And there's, there's no dumb question. And it's that thing of as well, I think, for myself where... It's quite a difficult conversation to navigate. What, first of all, inspired you to open up the discussion around mental health? Because it's similar, like it's a difficult one to open up on climate change. Yeah, well, that was difficult at first. But I thought, how can I talk about this stuff? What right do I have to start, you know, something completely new? And I wrote a book called Happy and that then led to the podcast and all the other stuff. So mm -hmm. I quickly got over myself and was like, right, this isn't just about like me sharing my story. This is about connecting with people and hopefully being helpful. So that made it easier, really. And then it getting, you know, really interesting feedback. And the feedback is so appreciated. Whenever anybody says that an episode had changed their mindset or they had been able to gain something from that speaker that day I'm absolutely over the moon so mm. that community does feel yeah more and more expansive and exciting and I get a kick out of it hopefully as much as the listeners do 
So beautiful. I wondered, was there any in conversation or standout like moments in that for you that stood out for? Right, so name dropping. I'm really sorry about this, but they all <laughs> seem like relevant clangs for, for this podcast. So when Dr. Jade Goodall came on Happy Plays. There it is, everybody. Clang, that is the big clang, guys. The big That's clanger. what we've been waiting for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when she came on, I was sort of quizzing her about this subject. Like, how do you lean into like feeling joyful and okay in everyday life in just the small moments when you know that these problems are so catastrophic and huge. She is very able to go from dealing with some crisis environmentally to then having a really lovely dinner with her close friends or family and enjoying every moment. You know all that's there and you will deal with it, but you have to have the joyful bits without any guilt or shame to give you the energy and make you robust so you can deal with that. Because I often feel a bit guilty, like, God, I'm having a really nice time, but I know these people are suffering or this crisis is happening. But you have to have the joyful bits of life to give you the energy to then go and be of service or to help or to do whatever you've got to do. But if there's hope, that is going to propel you forward and give your action this huge sense of possibility and that something brilliant could happen. And it's why I'm so interested in happiness, because we place so much value on happiness Like, we think it's the be-all and end-all. But without hope, we're not going to get anywhere near feeling happy. What are the things maybe that you find help, you know, combat those feelings when you do, you know, which we all feel where we go, oh, God, this is all a little bit much. Yeah, on a mental health level, when I have that overwhelm, and it might be to do with the problems that are happening environmentally, it might be knowing that certain people on the planet are really suffering in a terrible way and that horrible overwhelm that you feel and empathy, I guess I just try and get quiet. And I don't want to sound like I'm being ignorant or ignoring situations going on, but I think you do have to have moments of retreat where you back away from stuff and you turn your phone off for a day or you just get quiet and don't watch the TV and you just have a lack of stimulation so that you can... Be okay. Like, yeah, you know. and also get that in, like you say, even when you go to a local walk to, to a woods or something as well, there is a stillness and a quietness there that, that does provide a real special remedy for myself anyway. I wondered then on those small steps, because as we know, we do need the big systemic seismic change across the board. But for you personally, what are those steps you've taken to try and be more s- sustainable in, in your day-to-day and over these years? So food is a big one because I've got a lot of hungry kids who want to eat and they just snack. So looking at and learning about, more importantly, seasonal food. And also I think us not understanding how detrimental food grown with pesticides or whatever other chemicals are doing to us. Then with makeup and cosmetics, there's some amazing companies that are doing really good sustainable beauty products now where they're not using excessive plastic packaging. They're using aluminium. They've they're not got little tiny bits of intricate plastic hidden within. But for me, the cleaning product yeah. one has been a huge game changer because I just get these little glass bottles and pop them in the recycling and there's not that horrible edgy feeling. They're great. And I'm big on a clean surface, let me tell you. So, yeah, there are swaps out there to be made. You just have to do a bit of digging. But I think that's where Instagram is brilliant. There are so many people doing good stuff on Instagram in this area. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like we could could stay chatting for hours. It could be long. But my final question, which I put to all my guests, is what gives you hope for the future? What gives me hope? I think it's the fact that we don't have any other option. And that might sound bleak and it might sound blunt, but I do think 
it's the only way. There is stuff that's given me hope, like all those people doing good work, either, you know, the big people like your Dr. Jane Goodalls and your Sir David Attenborough's, but there's all these smaller companies and groups and communities doing great work that do give me hope. But I think when we're looking at the big picture, it's the fact that we don't have any other option. Oh, what a woman. I cannot thank Fern enough for her time and for her words. It did not disappoint that conversation. I really hope you, my friends, enjoyed it too. And do not forget, you can hear more from Fern in our bonus episode, which is out in a few weeks' time. And there are so many more gems to bring you from that conversation. So, the big question. How can we all connect with nature? It's something I think we all need to do. And it's something I'm always saying that we've lost that connection to the natural world and our place in it. Whether it's joining a global movement or just beginning by working it into your routine, there is never a bad time to start connecting with the natural world around you. An easy place to start while you're on your phone is downloading WWF's app. It's called My Footprint and jam-packed with ideas for you to try. For example, be a part of Earth Hour. It's one of my favourite hours of the year. If you've never heard of this, Earth Hour happens every year at 8.30pm on the last Saturday of March. You can join millions of people around the world as we all stand up for nature by switching off in a global movement for our planet. It is very powerful and it is a beautiful thing to do. Get the candles out, you're good to go. Or flower power. Growing a wildlife haven by simply scattering an area with UK native wildflower seeds to attract pollinators like bees and butterflies. We all know how much we need to help and save the bees. They are crucial to our very existence. You could also get to know your local wildlife. Many of us have had the chance to spend more time than ever exploring the nature on our doorstep during the pandemic. So you could use the Seek app to identify what you see. Oh, and there we have it. We have flown through that. It is the end of episode one of series two. We made it, my friends, and I really do hope you enjoyed it and more so found it helpful. Do remember, it is so important to take time for yourself, perhaps in nature, when things can feel a bit too much. I want to say a huge thank you to Will Baldwin-Cantello, Fern Cotton and Mark Miller for joining me on this episode. Now for our next episode, we're staying at home. From the buildings we live in to nature that connects and grounds us, we're going to explore the sense of belonging beyond the physical structure of home. And let me tell you, you are in for a treat because we have got some very special guests lined up for you, including, are you ready, the one, the only, the legend that is, Mr. Kevin McLeod. But if you're thinking, Kel, can't wait till then well do not worry we have got our bonus episode coming out in two weeks time it features more of fern which we couldn't fit into this episode do check that out and if you're still thinking kel two weeks is still too long then do not worry i've got you covered just head over to wwf uk's youtube channel it is full of content about the issues facing our planet and the awesome work they do to tackle them and it is full of hope and inspiration as well something i think we all need from time to time This has been a Fresh Air production for WWF. Subscribe or follow now for free so that you don't miss an episode. The wild is calling. It's time to act.